Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. What's up, y'all? Welcome to Hello Latino. It's your girl, Dali's Jasmine. It feels like it's been so long, but this episode is the best way to bring it back after a week of no episode. You're about to meet and learn more from Erica Barraza, a first-generation Salvadorian Latina and Bay Area native. She's currently working in LA as an actress, director, and using her platform and creative work to make a positive impact in this world. She just co-directed three 360 VR films for Lenovo, highlighting women-centric stories, films in the U.S., Mexico, and Brazil. In this episode, she talks about her conservative Latino upbringing to becoming a social entrepreneur and social activist and a storyteller in the entertainment world. She reminds us all that our stories, despite what we think, really are valid. I know y'all will love and vibe con esta reina salvadoreña. Enjoy. We bring that stuff on, you know? <laughs> yes. Although, I mean, the thing is, like, I, my parents came here from El Salvador. And, yeah, I was born and raised in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And it's so funny because, I mean, I'm sure we've all experienced those moments where, you know, some guy comes up to you and like, hey, where are you from? Like, what are you? I'm like, mm, you know, I'm from San Francisco. I'm like, no, but like, where are you? from like the bay yeah. area like you get a little personal and and so like struggling to like really like latch on to the latina identity i think really didn't come for me until the last couple years um just because like when my parents came here in i want to say like the late 70s early 80s um and you know from their mindset right from the get-go they're like no we're americans now And they raised me and my brother to just be, you are Americans, you're Americans. And then they moved us out to the suburbs and we went to these all white schools. And I went to like a pretty much all white university at the University of Michigan. And so it wasn't until I started hitting the racism in the Midwest that I was like, oh, right. I'm a brown Latina. Um, and everyone's gonna put me in that bucket. Yeah, oh my gosh, yeah. well, we can dive deep into that. And that's a good segue into the first question. So how do you identify and why? Yeah, you know, lately I would say, yeah, I definitely identify as just like a strong Latina woman. Um, but it's been, it's been a bumpy journey to get to that identity. I'm not going to lie. You know, for the longest time, I was just absolutely adamant and raised like I'm an American and I am. I'm absolutely an American. It's the only life I've ever known. Very few times have I been able to go back to El Salvador. Uh, I think I've only been back like three times my entire life. I'm about to go back for the fourth time for Christmas holidays. And it's, it's kind of, it, like I have been to war-torn countries. I have been 
traveling all over the world doing aid work and, and all kinds of projects and really cool stuff in like countries that have suffered a lot. Um, but I've always been really nervous to go back to El Salvador and I don't know why. And of course, like in all my white friends, like it's great surfing. I'm like, I know, I know. But, but my family is not living by the beach. My family lives in the barrios in San Salvador when they struggle and they are, you know, they're living mm -hmm. a completely different side of the tourist life that all my friends are aware of. So it's, you know, when I go there, it's, it's to see family. Um, mm -hmm. So I have felt like that Latina identity has only really started to embed itself in my heart now that I'm also trying to figure out my own family life situation, finding a husband, finding, you know, figuring out what does family mean to me now that I'm older <laughs> and I'm still young, but like now I'm like starting to focus on family. I'm like, wow, what does that mean in the, in the grander scope of my identity? Wow. And what does, I mean, this might, might, might get a little personal, but like, what does the family mean to you right now? Like, what are some things that you're just like, oh my God, like I need to figure this out or I need to pass this down to my generations. Like, what are some things that you're thinking about? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think the search for identity and family has been something that has just blossomed from my own personal search of doing, you know, my own mental health and wellness, my own physical wellness, right? How do I show up in the world? And, you know, now that you've kind of broken through all of you know, the like anxieties and, and other things that, you know, are just so common that our generation now has the courage to speak very openly about, I've gone through all of that self development and now I'm looking externally about like okay do I know people who now share this identity of you know family I think is is obviously the people that you choose you know you choose a husband and then you choose to build a family from there and so even by blood it comes from choice you know and this idea of love is is something that you choose every day to make that sacrifice to make the commitment and I think in, in developing that identity, what I discovered in myself was the same way I had to do that own in, my own internal work was I need to do the own internal work to the cultures as well. I wasn't raised with the history of you know, the civil wars in El Salvador. I wasn't raised with, you know, any like the origin stories from indigenous peoples. Um, there was just so much family history that I've been collecting piecemeal only during holidays when the wine is flowing and, and, <laughs> you know, and you pick up little bits of the family dark stories. You're like, really? So-and-so was involved in the revolution. And they're like, oh, don't tell your mother that. And I'm like, oh, okay. I wasn't supposed to know. <laughs> you know, I've, I've heard some really dark stories that only came out by accident. And now I'm like, well, I kind of should do some more research on that, huh? Like, I don't feel whole until I do that research for myself. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, that's so important. And you, it's funny thinking about how our families sometimes hide so much from us. And it's, and you're right now that, you know, I'm an adult and I'm with my family so often now, I ask these questions and I'm just like learning so much about people who raise me. And I'm just like people who are in my bloodline, people who are my ancestors, who are like my mis abuelo, mi abuela, you know, I'm just like blown away. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and it just makes you have a whole different set of pride. But you're right when a lot of times when families come here, when immigrants come here, it's 
they're, they are forced to assimilate or they choose to, right? They're just like, you know what? Let's just clean slate. <laughs> and everyone kind of handles that transition so differently. So it's so, it's so funny to me that, I mean, it does sometimes feel like the logical thing, right? When you've gone through so much generational trauma and now you have the opportunity to go somewhere where no one knows anything about you, your family history, your culture, it is a brand new start. Um, it's a luxury that only few have. And then, and then I, I guess part for me now is taking on that responsibility to say, hey, though, we still carry that generational trauma. And it's unfair to not know what it is. I mean, I'm about to take a, a you know, one of those genetic tests to just try and like figure out like what you know, what's inside of me, DNA wise, um, this funny story. I mean, like, it's not even the dark things, right? It's just common things. It's just not shared between our families. Uh, a couple years ago, I had to go to the emergency room. I was experiencing really intense pains and they couldn't figure it out. They're like, you're a young woman, you're in your twenties. We don't understand. You know, they're running all these random tests and 14 hours later, the emergency room discovered like, oh, your gallbladder needs to be taken out like immediately. And so then following morning, my mother's calling my abuelas and my tias and everybody and telling them, oh yeah, this is, you know, she's in the hospital. This is going on. She's fine. Every single one of them, they're like, oh yeah, I had mine taken out. Oh yeah, mine gave me trouble this year. Oh yeah. And I'm like, they asked me when we checked in, was there any family histories of anything? And I was like, mm, I don't know. No. And it wasn't until the following morning, we were like, oh, yeah, we had ours taken out, too. Oh, yeah, that was me, too. I'm like, ladies, ladies, <laughs> this is useful information that could have saved me at least 10 hours in the emergency room. Oh, my goodness. You know what? That's interesting because I remember that's the question that doctors always ask, right? Like, what's the family history? And it's so funny because I remember one of so we had like a tío abuelo right um he passed away from diabetes and so did some of his um you know some of my other what do you call them like tío primos i don't know his children they're all tíos they're all tíos and abuelos <laughs> they're family because um, we choose that's why <laughs> yeah exactly but i know some of other family members also passed away from diabetes and i remember so clearly they asked me if I had any family history of diabetes. And I was real young. I was like, Nise, you know, probably middle school or something. And I had remembered like, oh, my deal, you know? And I said, yes. And my mom's like, no, 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 no one's ever died from diabetes. And then she like told the doctor, no, I was like, pero mi abuelo? And she's like, no, like that was just one. I was like, y mi tío? <laughs> yes. Yeah, like the one counts, actually. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, interesting. Um, but again, it was, it's interesting because that's how my family always operated. Like, no, 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 nothing's wrong with you. Nothing's ever been wrong with the family. Like it's all good, you know? And even with doctors, I'm like, this could be useful. <laughs> and like even high blood pressure, like there, there is like history of high blood pressure in my family. But when, when I remember my mom would just be like, no, 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 nothing nothing's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and I find myself doing that too. I'm like, oh, I'm good. Um, actually, hold on. <laughs> Let me think about it. <laughs> like, we're perfect. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. But it's, that's really interesting. But yeah, again, I, I think that 
it's hard. I can't even imagine what it's like to be an immigrant to like move your like uproot your entire life and try to navigate this new this new land, right? This new world. And I said this before in another pod, um, but another episode. But I was talking to my dad, and he said something that really kind of just made me a little sad. But he said, "This isn't our land." He's like, "This, I'm an immigrant." He's like, "This is the gringos' land," you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "But no, you're here. You're working. You're 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 paying your dues. You you know, you're on your way to citizenship." And he's like, "But it's still not my country." And I'm like. I just didn't, I didn't fight it. I was just kind of like sat with it. And I was like, okay, like that's, that's been his perspective for years. And so we, and this is why I have this podcast, right? It's an interesting dynamic to be a first generation Latino, Latina, because we're just navigating these two different worlds and we just see them so closely. We experience one and we also experience another. And we're just like... Absolutely. You know, I think one of, one of my biggest identity struggles with with the latina identity but just like overall in general was you know this constant question of like am i enough and in and, and on its surface i think you know there isn't a single person on this planet that doesn't ask themselves that you know at some point doubt themselves but it's it's that straddling actually you know people think you're straddling two identities it's really three because, you know, there's the American identity, which is its own thing. There's the cultural Latino identity of where your parents came from. And then there's that third identity of what does it mean to be both? Mm. You know, because yeah. you're not one or the other. You are both. So, so there's actually a, a trifecta of challenges when it comes to, you know, is, am, I, am I valid in either culture? You know, because my Spanish is not great. Yeah. Um, I wish it was better. And for years, you know, my parents didn't emphasize speaking Spanish at home because they were of the impression, you know, again, we're Americans now, we speak English. Mm -hmm. And I remember when my parents were first newly married, I remember them telling us a story of how they learned to speak English uh, because my mom loved her telenovelas. We all do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But my dad- I still do. (laughs) I know, me too. (laughs) (laughs) but my dad came home one day and said you know what he's like we're never gonna get any better if we don't start speaking English so you know they were newly married and he made the decision for the household which was just the two of them at the time like we're Mm -hmm. only going to speak English in the house which meant no more telenovelas so she switched to soap operas in English which is then how I got my name (laughs) Erica was oh really (laughs) Erica Kane (laughs) One of the most notorious villains in soap opera, but she was like, no, she's a strong, you know, determined woman. She knows what she wants. I'm like, well, that's true. She's also kind of evil, though. But that's how I ended up with my name. And, you know, because they they switched to watching only English television. And then when my brother and I were born and we started going to school in San Francisco, we were still speaking a lot of Spanish. Um, and they had us in the ESL classes because Spanish was actually my first language. My first words were in Spanish. And my dad said, nope, I don't want them in ESL. He said, I want them speaking only English. And so they threw us into uh, a new public school out in the suburbs. And from that moment on, we were only speaking English. And my parents were learning English alongside my brother and I, who were in kindergarten, first grade, second grade. And they were doing all the homework with us. And they learned right alongside us but then in order to not derail 
our language learning skills, they also spoke English with us. So that's um, that's where I kind of feel like I, I, I still understand it, but my tongue is just so slow and heavy that it doesn't speak Spanish well enough. Wow. Do you know much about your parents' immigration story? Like kind of backtracking to mm-hmm. 70s, 80s, right? When they came here. Yeah. Do you know anything about that? Okay. So here's what I know. I'm going to say I trust it about like 80%. so apparently when my mother my mom is one of five and um so when she was uh i would say like eighth grade maybe early high school my grandfather her dad came to the united states on a visa because he used to operate on all of the municipal buses in san salvador and he had his own little shop and everything and so he was a small business owner And he got a visa to work on the buses in Detroit. So he came by himself to Michigan and to Detroit, worked on the buses there. And then after he, uh, I think, gotten his green card or something, he was able to move the rest of the family. But he decided he wanted to go to San Francisco. So he brought the family up from El Salvador to San Francisco um, before his oldest sons were too old to qualify as minors. He brought everybody up. And, um, and then that's where my mom started going to high school in San Francisco. And my mom and dad had grown up in the same barrio and they had met while she was, you know, like freshman, sophomore in high school there. And then they moved. And so they're suddenly gone. So my parents kept writing love letters to each other the whole time. Wait, that's so cute. (laughs) I know. I know. She still has the box of love letters. Um, it's adorable, but they, uh, yeah. And so she was there finishing high school. My dad was in El Salvador finishing high school. And, you know, after my dad's a bit, a couple years older than her. And so he was working and he saved up a bunch of cash and he asked her in a letter, like, I want to marry you. If I come up to the States, can I marry you? And I think she turned him down like twice. <laughs> and then finally, like she was, she was like, playing hard to get. <laughs> I think she was like, you're never going to move here. You know, I think yeah. like was her, her was her thought. And so finally she was like, okay, fine. Like if you do it, fine. Um, being really coy. And so, yeah, my dad, you know, asked his, his mom, like for her, for her blessing to, to move to the States. And, you know, she, she knew that the opportunities for him in El Salvador were limited and he had a chance at love. So she said, yeah, go for it. And gave him his, gave him her blessing and, off he went and he came here and then he asked my abuelo for my mom's hand in marriage. And he said, no, <laughs> he chased him off with the fire what? hose. Yeah. He chased him off with like the garden hose in the front of the house. He was like, no, get out of here. <laughs> um, and he was, you know, he told, he told my dad like, no, she's, she's really smart. She's going to make something of her life. I don't want her to get married right away. Um, and so my dad was like, I promise if we get married, I'll make sure she goes to school make sure, you know, she has a good life. And eventually they ended up eloping and, but my dad kept his promise, you know, eventually, you know, the family healed and and whatever. Um, But my dad kept his promise. He worked super hard to make sure that my mom could continue to go to college. She worked for the same company for 35 years and they helped pay for her undergraduate and her master's in business degree. Um, And she did that all doing night school while my brother and I were doing swim practice and school. And my dad cooked all the dinners 
my dad took us to all the swim practices and everything. And wow. Yeah. So it was a total like gender, gender reversal. You know, I mean, he really was committed to we're Americans now. Everything we knew, you know, we're just we're just going to adapt. You know, some of the machismo is still there, but, you know, he was still like, but he takes a lot of We're like, we don't talk about that. (laughs) You know, some some, some things are a little deeper ingrained, but, um, but, you know, he takes pride in his cooking. You know, his love language, I think, is food. So it sounds very Latino of him. mm -hmm, Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So it was, I would say that's kind of the bulk of their, of their immigration stories really rooted in, in falling in love with each other. Oh, that's so beautiful. How does that make you feel? You're like a product of that. <laughs> Girl, I feel old. It makes me feel old. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I am 10 years older than my mom was when she had me. And I'm like, and I'm just like barely thinking I'm ready for a dog right now. So I don't know. <laughs> Girl, I think about that all the time because my mom was 19 when she when she had my oldest brother. And by the time she was my age, I'm 24, I'm a baby. Mm-hmm. But by the time she was my age, she had she was she had already popped out babies. Like she mm-hmm. had like four kids. And I'm like, I can't even imagine. <laughs> you know, like crazy. But that's the thing. I think like so many of our of our parents, or at least my parents, y'all only talk about my parents. You know, I I really feel like they were just kind of on a checklist. It was what you did, right? Like you fall in love, you get married. You married, you have kids. You have kids, you find a good home for them in schools, and then you get, you know, get them going onto the same track that you're on. It's a checklist. It doesn't mean that they're not taking any joy in the whole process. Of course they were. But, you know, for me, I think a lot of it was just somewhat interrupted with with just more existential questions about like, you know, yeah, I was a liberal arts major in school. I actually major I double majored in theater and in English. And so, so much of my personal development and my own curiosities in art are around what does it mean to be human and what is the human experience? And one of my personal passions and goals is to, you know, quote, live as many lives as possible. And that just means like, if there's something I don't know, I just go after it. You know, I, a a lot of people get super scared about the unknown, and I kind of see it like that drop in a roller coaster where it's like, okay, this is really terrifying, but it's going to yeah. build a lot of momentum for the next big one, you know? And I don't know. I've, I have stopped and restarted and tried something new. I've moved to different countries. I've worked, I've, you know, started a couple different businesses, worked in tons of different industries, and just kind of followed my heart of like, okay, what do I, what do I want to know now? What do I want to experience now? Um, and those just were never really questions. I feel like my parents took the time to ask themselves. And now they're both retired. And they're kind of bored out of their minds because they're like, well, we don't know what to do with ourselves. I'm like, go explore. That's so funny because my parents are the same. Like they don't, you know, they're not like retired per se because they didn't never had like jobs where they can retire. But mm-hmm. like they're not working as much. And I tell them, I'm like, why don't you just chill and like go do something, a pasear, you know, like just go like on a trip. And they're just like, no hay que trabajar, hay que hacer esto en la casa. And like they just find things to do. And I'm like, all right, y'all do you. Yes. <laughs> and I feel like, and I catch myself in those moments too where I'm just like, I need to work, I need to do this, I need to be productive. And I'm like, oh, that's like my parents talking in my head, you know? <laughs> that's like what I was raised with, with that hustle, that grind, like constantly, like no rest. And I have to consciously remind myself, 
And kind of like what you were saying, it's like, you can do things a little differently. You have a privilege to do things a little differently because you're right. Our parents, they, although they were happy, they were following a checklist. Yeah. I mean, and it's almost, it feels almost like a, like a survivalist checklist, which I think, you know, and I don't have this experience. I've never been an, an immigrant to a new country. Um, I mean, in 2016, I had the opportunity to move to Germany, like fully sponsored, like, Hey, are you afraid about this? Moved, of the- moved? I had the, I had a job offer to, you know, okay. move to Germany in January of 2017, right before uh, the inauguration. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I had to like dig deep. I'm like, what would that mean for me if I was to take this opportunity to go move to another country, fully sponsored the job opportunity with a potential citizenship path to the EU? And I decided not to for a couple of different reasons. But just, you know, I, I, it did get me thinking a lot. I would, I would say genuinely that's when my search for my own Latino identity really started, was really looking at that and then considering what my parents had to go through. And I mean, I don't know. I just, I didn't want those challenges, but it definitely helped me respect what my parents had to go through um, and the choices that they made to to make those sacrifices. Oh man, I can't even imagine. I'm I'm curious though, because you're you're a Bay Area native, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're from the Bay. First of all, I love the Bay. The Bay has a very special place in my heart, which is why the title of this podcast is Hella Latino. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you gotta throw the hella in there. Um, but I love the Bay. I went I was I lived there for like six, six, seven years. Six. I'm mm-hmm. always getting that wrong, but I lived there for a couple years, went to school and worked there and I you know, all my friends are there. My, I literally moved down to San Diego only because of COVID. So I I would have just stayed in the Bay, but I'm curious, like talk about your upbringing because you, you kind of mentioned at the beginning that you were, you know, part of that assimilation process being American, but you also went to like white schools, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so talk about that journey not only in the Bay area and like going to these schools, um, and practicing that assimilation, but also when you went to Michigan, because I can't imagine living in Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So we were in, I mean, I was, I was born in San Francisco. Um, I remember actually it was just like two years ago, my mom and I were driving through that city and my mom just looks out the window. She's like, oh, that's the Kaiser you were born in. I was like, wait, what? She's like, yeah, that's the one. I was like, oh, I thought, oh, okay. I like, didn't even realize until just a couple cool. years. Yeah, I'm like, oh, cool. I thought it was the one on the other side of town, you know, closer to your house. She's like, no, we were doing blah, 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 whatever. And I went into labor. I was here. I'm like, cool. Stuff I didn't know. But yeah, so so we, you know, my parents bought their first house in Glen Park in San Francisco. Um, but, you know, we we spent all our time with my abuelita in the mission. Um, and they had a house there. Um, you know, our first elementary school was there in the mission, um, I think just off 24th. And it was after the, um, it was after the 89 earthquake that my parents were like, listen, we need to move out of this city because they were both commuting into the East Bay to work. My dad was taking the BART into mm-hmm. Concord to work at Bank of America. My mom was 
um, I think she was working in the financial district for State Farm. Um, and then when the earthquake hit, like they were both like, they couldn't reach us. You know, we were safe with my tia and my abuela um, and all my primos, like, um, you know, we were all, they were taking care of all of us. We were like a little brood of kids. And we were just there at the house when the 89 earthquake was like in full recovery. But I think that was when they realized they're like, well, you know, it's going to take a while for the city to rebuild itself. We're already commuting into the East Bay as it is. And they never wanted to have that challenge, that danger of being separated from us again. So they started house hunting and we moved into the East Bay. And when I say East Bay for a lot of folks, that's Oakland, right? That's, that's Oakland, mm -hmm. Vallejo. It's, um, you know, it's everything up until you hit the hills with Orinda. And then once you're in Orinda, you're in white people territory. Yeah. <laughs> You've got Orinda, Lafayette, Walnut Creek, right? And then you get conquered even farther. In. I lived, I lived in Livermore for a while. So I know. There you go. Yeah, you know, you know, and, um, yeah. you know, and I dated almost exclusively white boys from, from that, like, I think like, I mean, when we're, from, we're, you know, I'm from Concord, I still call it the East Bay. I think other folks have a different name for that region, but I'm going to still call it the East Bay because <laughs> I can. But the truth is, you know, the high school I went to was literally um, the next town over was just farmland. And so you did have like a lot of white rural folk who were coming to the high school. Like everyone was not even for Halloween. Everyone was just like dressed up as cowboys because like that's what they did. They all loan, like all own like land and, and property and stuff. And, um, you know, it was pretty like affluent neighborhoods. I mean, not as fancy as as Orinda or anything like that or Walnut Creek, but like, but you know, because there's some parts of Concord that can be a little touch and go. But <laughs> but we, um, you know, but for the most part, it was like it was just really safe suburbs um and you know there were there were a lot of latinos and folks in in concord but then um you know we did swim practice and and you know i was a swimmer from age seven um until about 15 16 when i finally quit so like we just did all of these activities where we were just constantly surrounded by white folks which was nothing wrong i love them i love everybody and i just but but the wonderful thing I, about it i think that was really just really unique was that because we grew up with the same set of kids that went to the same elementary school went to the same middle school went to the same high school same kids you saw at swim practice you know same kids that you've pretty much known your entire life everyone just kind of treated you the same no one really thought anything about it you know in my uh in my high school our student body president um i think was a, a child of two persian immigrants and and we didn't see anything weird about that and i remember the school newspaper because it was like after 9 11 the school newspaper did an article about like you look how progressive they are and everyone's like that's just sam what do you mean? <laughs> like, why? What's wrong with Sam? Why is he getting called out? Like, you know, yeah. we just didn't see it. Everybody grew up together, you know, and it's not by any means like a small town. You know, Concord, I think, has something like 300,000 people in it. So it's not massive, but it's not like everybody knows your name kind of a place. But we just assimilated with it. And so I didn't see anything strange or potentially challenging about the idea of you know, going to UC Berkeley or going to Michigan or, you know, any of the other schools that I got into. And then it was just purely a choice of, well, 
you know, I'd been acting since I was 12. I really wanted to continue pursuing acting and entertainment and all of that work. And Michigan had the best program that I got into. My parents, though, did not want to pay for a fine arts degree. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 mm -hmm. we want you to go to school, but like to get a job after. So, um, That's so yeah. That's another thing. <laughs> Girl, yeah, that was another thing, you know, because I was like, I I definitely, I had the, the talent, the skill and the passion at the time, but there was very few people who were like, it doesn't make any sense. Why, like, why would you go to school and then not work? I'm like, well, acting is work. I'm like, yeah, no, yeah. no, acting something you do for fun. I'm like, oh, okay. So definitely yeah. <laughs> claiming this idea that work cannot be fun or work isn't something you enjoy. Mm -hmm. Work is something that you do. Um, I think it's just been one of the driving factors of why I change up all of my career paths so often. <laughs> Cause I'm like, well, no, if I'm not enjoying it, I'm not going to sacrifice 12 hours of my day to do it. Yeah. Again, a luxury. As as you you should have the option to do that, right? Like yeah. for sure. Yeah. And then um I remember when, when I was at Michigan, there was a lot of turmoil going on there. I didn't realize just a lot of kind of the embedded uh stereotypes and assumptions that a lot of people had. And and even just like within the students themselves were just kind of slowly pointing those things out to me. You know, because I remember it was, a, it was an election year in Michigan, and one of the things on the ballot was affirmative action. And I grew up with parents who, <laughs> my, my, you know, I've talked a lot about my parents, but, you know, they they came here in the late 70s. They, uh, they assimilated very quickly to this idea of, like, you have to be a proper American. You make sacrifices. You do this. Uh, so when I was growing up, I had pictures of Ronald Reagan on the fireplace um, you know, George and Laura Bush in my parents' bedrooms. Um, I grew up with a very conservative teaching, very conservative parents, not religious parents, but just very fiscally conservative. So when I got to Michigan, you know, it was the first time moving away from home, moving pretty much all the way across the country. I was the only one in my family to do it. Still, like even my, my oldest cousin, she went to UC Santa Cruz, which was the farthest her dad would let her go because he could still drive there every weekend and like check in on her. I got out. I got out as far as I could. I was like, this You're is my like, only goodbye. Yeah. I, was like, if I did not take this opportunity to leave California. I will never leave California. And I really believed that. And it would probably is true. So I was like, no, 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 I'm going to force myself to be uncomfortable and learn something and just get out. And so I did, I went somewhere completely different. Um, and so just having these conversations with the girls about, um, I lived in an all women's co-op at the university. So there were 30 of us in a house and we were having these long drawn out discussions about the benefits and the challenges and, you know, the prejudices about affirmative action. And I just, and I didn't get it at the time. Um, you know, and now I've become like very politically active, very, very liberal. I mean, I don't consider human rights a political issue, but I start there. Like who is awarding or at least recognizing basic human rights. And then we can talk about governance. Cause if you can't start there, yeah. I don't want to hear it, but um, you know, that's definitely something I, I started learning and challenging myself about while I was at the university. And I had the space away from my family to do that. Yeah. And that's what I always say. And that's, and that's a beautiful part of the first gen experience is that, college like being enlightened by all these things because 
Yes, I think a misconception is that Latinos are very conservative. We come from, you know, like our roots are of oppression and Catholicism and, you know, Christianity, you know, whatever, what have you, like our our families do tend to lean more on the conservative side. And plus what I've been reading about lately, and I've been kind of just reflecting on this and sitting with it is a lot of our Latino Latino America, you know, if you really think about it, they all come from socialists and democracies, right? And so for them, they see it and they're like, well, the, no, like, no, that's bad. And so they're going to come to the United States because it's not like that. They have democracy. They have this. They have that. And exactly. so they're like, that's just, what we just got out of. Like, we don't want that anymore. Exactly. exactly. And I don't think it's really hard for them to wrap their head around it. And again, when you understand where your families come from, and this may differ, obviously, wherever you are from Latino America, wherever your family's from, but I'm just thinking of El Salvador, you know, your parents were escaping a civil war, like a whole revolution. And so, again, it's like thinking about things in context, like understanding why they're thinking the way that they're thinking. It's not that they think, this is the right thing, but they're thinking, they're comparing it to what they experience. You know what I'm saying? Like, and that's what I've had to understand. I'm like, why do you guys think like this? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> I'm like, y'all are Latinos. Um, but like, then they are trying to harm you. Like, what? Yes, <laughs> I do not like you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, again, like challenging the views, but also in a way understanding where they're coming from. Because I think once you understand the other person's, like especially with family, right? Especially like understanding your own roots, your own like parents' backgrounds, your own family's backgrounds, you're like, ah, okay, I see where you're coming from. But listen, let me challenge you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think, yeah, I get that. I get that so much. And so I can't even imagine being in Michigan And like trying to navigate this whole different world. But again, part of the first gen experience that's real beautiful is that you get to go to college for the first time in your families, right? Mm -hmm. And be enlightened and learn all these different things. And that's a beautiful thing because we're the first in our families to really do that. Absolutely. I mean, and and that's the thing too, right? That like, I mean, my mom always talks about how going to school was was the thing that radicalized me. I was like, well, actually... Um, you know, they like, see that too. They, they get mad about it. They're like, you left to college. You came back a different person. I was like, but don't you love me now? Like, <laughs> I like, I'm enlightened. I speak my mind. Like guys, <laughs> guys, but like, you wanted me to go be really smart, right? Like I'm really smart. <laughs> that too. That too. <laughs> well, you know, but the thing is like, I always, you know, tease my mom. Like, you know, she bought me all of these, like all of our childhood books are about, you know, kids fighting revolutions, all, you know, about social justice issues, about, um, you know, all kinds of stuff. Like, I think my favorite, my favorite story of my mom and I like, just were like, you know, she, she's believing she's like fully, uh, you know, Americanized and, you know, assimilated and everything. And when I was in middle school and I started doing theater, I remember there was one of our drama teachers, she came and she was like an actress who just kind of was like, not going to do it anymore. She's just going to teach. And she told us about uh, this amazing new musical that we all have to see called Rent. We're in middle school. We had no business being told about this musical, but like I went to Tower yeah. Records. You know, I saved my allowance, went to Tower Records, and I got like the Rent original cast soundtrack and listened to it nonstop. Wow. Like, like this was like in the days when I still believed my room was soundproof. 
And my parents refused to tell me it wasn't because they wanted to hear everything going on in my room. And so I was just singing along to every song. I had that musical memorized. So by the time, like years later, when it came to San Francisco on tour, my mom was like, guess what? I got you tickets for rent. We're going to go, you and me, we're going to see it. I'm like, yes. I was so excited. We get there. First 20 minutes in, my mom is horrified. If you don't know rent, if you don't know rent, my poor, cons my poor conservative mother is sitting there watching, you know, about this, this musical about the AIDS pandemic in the eighties, about transsexuals, about, you know, gay lifestyles, about you know, living in the East village in New York in the eighties. She was not ready. She and, was like, what? <laughs> she, I was the one that ended up grounded afterward for not telling her what it was about. Like, you bought the tickets. You didn't bother to, like, figure out what the show was about. She's like, you listen to it all the time. I'm like, and? And um, she just didn't realize what it what it was. And, I, and, and you would think after that they would take a little closer inspection of what I was reading and and discovering just all through my childhood. So I always laugh. I'm like, you know, you say you think I was radicalized in college. I said, but all of these things, all of my interests were all leading toward who I am now. You know, this this yeah. interest in, in the human experience and, and, you know, prejudices and whatnot and fighting against that. It's like that has always been at the core of what has attracted me into the arts from the from childhood. It wasn't just college. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I love Rent too. <laughs> like literally like the best, the best, like, like unmatched. <laughs> um, but I want to move now into, I think it's a good segue into our cafecito and chisme portion. Ooh, I yes. got my cafecito right here. <laughs> El chismecito, we're ready. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm real curious to, to learn about, um, just to learn about what you're doing now. So this segment's really about like, you know, what are you doing? Like passion projects, jobs, relationships. You can get, we can get into mm. that too. Mm. <laughs> you're like, mm, <Ooh>. okay. <laughs> Pandemic bumble dating. My goodness. <laughs> are you dating during quarantine? How's quarantine dating Ooh. going for you? You know, dating is a very generous word for what we're doing during quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> that however you want but the truth is I you know I feel like so many of us are just so hungry for human connection you know that like, yeah even video calls it's like oh another face you know um yeah but yeah I mean I've gone on, uh, gone on a few socially distanced dates I think the first couple months of the pandemic people were like oh no I only date in person I'm not gonna do zoom calls and I'm like okay fine like I just told you I don't feel comfortable unless we meet first in zoom so if you're not gonna respect my boundaries toodles you're not the one <laughs> yeah exactly I'm like it's such a basic request if you can't honor that boundary like is it gonna work so yeah um I so yeah, so that started and then I would take like, and then I take a few weeks off and then I'm back on Bumble and I'm like, I've gone through the whole like life cycle of like super excited. I'm going to burn this app. Gosh, I'm really yeah. lonely. Are there any other apps anyone suggests? No. Okay. I'm back on, I'm back on, you know, and like that life cycle, I think I've gone through it three times in the last eight months now. God, it's been eight. I months. love it. 
It's been eight months. Can you believe that? I feel like in what was the thing that they were saying in March? Like 14 days will flatten the curve. 14? Yeah. 15? Is it like hyper optimistic American spirit? Yeah. Like, yeah, eight months later. Good Lord. Girl. Girl, I can't even. That's crazy to think about, though. We've literally been in quarantine for eight months. I know. But yeah, dating, dating in quarantine is interesting. I'm like, I just live vicariously through everyone. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Because I can't do social apps. Uh, you know, <laughs> I can't I, do it. My I, soul's too old. I'm like, uh, <laughs> my soul is far too old. I mean, the thing is, uh, the hilarious thing, you know, I mean, I prioritized myself, my work by, you know, all my explorations, everything like, you know, there've been several times now in my life where I just like pick everything up, sell everything off. I'm like, no, nope, fuck it. I'm moving to another, uh, to another country or I'm going to move to another city like within 72 hours notice I'm like I don't want to be here anymore I'm going to go somewhere else and just move and now I'm like you know what I think I've got that out of my system maybe I should start focusing on dating and maybe I should start focusing on finding a dude and you know see where it goes uh so I intentionally did not date anyone with any like seriousness for the last two years and this year (laughs) You know, making New Year's oh, resolutions no. in 2019. I'm like, 2020 is my year. It's a solid number. <laughs> it's great. You know, I'm I'm finally like feeling good in my career. Everything <laughs> jokes on me. And the rest yeah. of us, yeah. Then Rona was like, you thought, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Miss <laughs> Rona was like, girl, you ain't done yet. <laughs> yeah, you ain't done. You ain't done reflecting. <laughs> Go on your self-aware journey. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that is so, that's so funny. And you're in LA, you said? Yeah. Well, and I just, I moved uh, for the last three years. I've been spending my time 50-50 between LA and San Francisco. And then last year mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? I really want to double down. I'm going to commit to all the work I'm doing in entertainment. Because um, I, I wear so many different hats on the, on, on the performance and production side and just different kind of entertainment projects. And I was like, no, 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 this is where I need to be. And so I decided in October, I was like, I'm, I'm coming down to LA and that's where I'm going to be. I'm going to make a life there. So I moved down to LA in October and I was just starting to get things going. And then Ms. Rona Ms. showed Rona. up. Ms. Rona showed up. I had maybe five solid months, four if we're not counting, you know, the month everyone takes off for all the holidays. But yeah, but you know what though? I've actually been thriving. This year I I I produced and, and co-directed three virtual reality documentaries. Um and those those came out, those were done on behalf of Lenovo, and those all came out um in the beginning of October, you know, just telling the yeah. story of three amazing young women. I mean, there was ten overall, but the ones I worked on, there was three of them. Uh one young woman in mm-hmm. Mexico who is taking uh, her friends and everything. She's taking STEM science and, and robotics classes and physics classes to the rural co- like mountain communities all around Monterrey in Mexico. And that one's called School on the Road. She's doing amazing work. Um, another amazing young woman in Brazil who's you know using music and meditation and the arts to help you know young women and, and kids in the favelas all over Brazil transcend you know, where their, where their start in life is. 
Um, she overcame yeah. so many hardships to get to where she is now. And she's incredible. And then, you know, the third was a young woman here in the United States who's a Nigerian first generation immigrant who uh, grew up in Detroit and was going to University of Michigan. And her story and mine aligned so closely. Like she and I just bonded because, mm-hmm. like, you know, we were running around the University of Michigan. And I'm like, oh, my God, this feels so familiar. And she's like, you have to tell me everything. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not telling you the punchline to like any answers here. I'm like, but I'll share with you my experience. So those were three amazing projects I got to work on. And I, I mean, I work in virtual reality. Um, learning how to do volumetric and photogrammetry and um, uh, virtual production, which is the the newest, latest and greatest in Hollywood, uh, is doing virtual production. Um, John Favreau, uh, who directed the original Iron Man, um, you know, he's, you know, so many other amazing movies, but he used virtual production notably for the live action remake of The Lion King. you know, and so, and it's, it's definitely something that's starting to pick up and I'm right there with everyone helping to develop out those tools and do storytelling that way. But I'm, I'm back that's to acting. beautiful. Yeah. How did you get into doing that virtual reality production? Oh boy. Um, and by the way, I want to do say, I, I never do research on the people I interview because uh-huh. I like I like it being like just like pure curiosity, but I, yeah, but I did look at your Lenovo films and they're beautiful. Thank you. They're beautiful. And these stories are so beautiful. And the fact that you're representing immigrants, right? Mm-hmm. Like Nigerian first gen, you're representing first gen communities and Latinos, like from Brazil, from Mexico. It's beautiful. Thank I was you. just like, this girl's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. But yeah, how did you, how did you get into virtual reality? My and gosh. Producing. Yeah, it's it's just one of those things where I did not have a plan uh, to do any of this. All I knew was just like deep in my heart, all I want to do is just tell super powerful stories. I love stories of just exploring what it means to be human. And in 2013, I was in grad school and was working with um, you know, just learning social entrepreneurship. And what, uh, you know, what does it mean to create a business that's environmentally and socially responsible and yada, yada, yada. I thought I was going into business. Of course, my parents wanted me to go into business. But then I happened to find someone who was trying to do these first person perspective stories of the homeless. And he's like, you know, I'm, I, I have this idea. Don't know how to execute. I'm like, I know how to do that. I, I know how to tell really great stories and I know how to you know, operationally manage a project. Let me help you. So I helped him, you know, the two of us, like we produced all of these amazing stories in San Francisco doing first person perspective uh, videos of what it's like to be homeless in San Francisco. And those stories went viral. It was all over, you know, global news and like Good Morning America and and all, you know, all these places. That guy ended up being a bit of a dirt bag. <laughs> and so I left the project. But mm. like a few months later, everyone was telling me, they're like, yeah, you're creating immersive media. And it's like, that's cool. Immersive media sounds really cool. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> so I, I started doing more research. And then they finally put me in a VR headset in um, late 2014, early 2015. I don't remember exactly when. I put on a virtual reality headset for the first time. I was like, holy crap, this is exactly the type of uh, story experience we wanted people to have 
when we set out to do those first person perspective videos, you know, because our homeless volunteers would wear a GoPro camera on the chest harness. So you'd literally, when you're watching the video, you'd see everything from their point of view, how people look at you, how people avoid eye contact or, you know, move away or whatever, even if all you're trying to do is just like sell a newspaper, right? So it was super powerful. And then, um, yeah, and then I just started going to, to like meetup groups and stuff all over the city and like get to know more and more folks. And finally, you know, I was talking with a friend of mine and he was like, Erica, have you ever worked on one of these before? And I was like, oh, no, not exactly. And he's like, cool. He's like, I'm going to make you a production assistant on my next one. He's like, you can totally do this. He's like, just stick with me. And, and he really, um, you know, he connected me to tons of folks who were working in the industry. He gave me some of my first credits. Um, and he just took a shot because you could see I was super committed and interested. Um, so I just started as a production assistant to a couple different stuff, to, to a couple different pieces. Um, I think my, my favorite one that he and I worked on was the one in Antarctica was for the Discovery Channel. Um, they went to go film 360 in Antarctica. And we had to do so much like research and prep work to make sure the equipment wasn't going to fail. I mean, because these are all brand new, like these are cameras that just are not available to anybody. Like we had to go to Google and pick them up from the research lab and then take them to go do the extra <laughs> special tests and things. And yeah. Um, but yeah, I just started off as a, just a curious person wanting to tell stories and just following the rabbit hole. Now I'm here. <laughs> just got to direct my first one like four or five years later after my first production assistant. Wow, that's so beautiful. And I'm sure all those those that need to or that want that desire to tell stories all came from what you did, right? You studied mm -hmm. theater and you studied um, English, right? Yeah. Yeah, I used so to live. You've always been passionate about stories and rent too. I mean, you were a big fan of rent. I mean, you love you love stories. I could tell. I love <laughs> stories so much. I love telling stories. You know, the funny thing is, I think rent probably had the biggest effect on me in terms of assimilating myself or recognizing like more white and European culture, just because I used to listen to La Vie Bohème, you know, which is the song right before the intermission, and they just rattle off so many references of poets and people and you know and they're all like folks that my parents had never read or brought into the house or anything and so I I actually like wrote them all out like everything that showed up in those lyrics I wrote out every single thing and then went and researched and read almost all of their stuff and then that's how I ended up as an English major <laughs> wait I love that oh my god that's super cool yeah because I mean wow. like the, the, the thing I used to ask my friends, I'm like, where do you get book recommendations? Like, I, I mean, my parents used to read a lot, but they were reading like, you know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and business books <laughs> and all this. I'm like, no, no, no. I want yeah. literature. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. There's something powerful about reading. And I, I always tell the story, but I was an ESL student. I literally spoke Spanglish. Like, because that's what I spoke at home. My brother spoke English and my sister spoke English. But with our parents, we only spoke Spanish. And so it's an interesting dynamic. And I would literally go to school and I'd speak Spanglish. And I remember having the worst time in English class. I hated it. I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. Like, I don't get it. Like, I don't get it. And I struggled every single time, every English class. And I remember I would study 10 times harder for English than I did with any other language because grammar didn't make sense to me. Like it doesn't make sense. Like all these things. 
Like, it doesn't make sense. I'm like, what? (laughs) Um, But I remember I would study it so much that I literally fell in love with words because I'm like, this is powerful. Words are powerful and stories are powerful. And I always think back to my, you know, my family, they're natural storytellers because that's what, that's how we keep our, our histories alive. You know, my parents, they will talk for days about what's happened with the family or what's happened with el fulano, fulana, you know, they, they, they tell a lot of stories. And most recently, like in the last couple of years, they've been telling me their stories. And so for me, it's just powerful to, to amplify these stories, right? Because I'm like, and that's why I'm sure that your journey right now is really special of you trying to figure out your, your own identity and your Latinidad and what that means to you. But it's powerful. Storytelling is real powerful. And you understand that more than anyone, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and I'm experiencing it in a couple different ways now, um, you know, because I, I, I did come back in October to Los Angeles with the idea of like, okay, I'm going to stay in entertainment. I'm going to keep working on productions. But a, a lot of the driving force of that was like, you know, I still haven't gotten this idea of performance and acting out of my heart and I yeah. need to listen to that. So, so you know, I, ha- I have actually been a working actor for a- about a year now, um, you know, because it's, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, because, you know, the thing is, is there are so many amazing allies and other Latinos and Latinx folk here in Los Angeles who are absolutely committed to getting more Latinos represented in Hollywood. And, I was just going to say there, there's lack of representation. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 terrible, low numbers of representation in front of and behind mm-hmm. the camera. And, you know, and the thing is, it's it's a little hard to because just like breaking into any kind of group or social network, whatever, even like to try and break into some of those Latino and Hollywood groups is a little rough right now, too. You know, mainly because of the pandemic, like there's no meetup events or anywhere where I can like go and meet people in face, like face to face meetings and be like, I'm legit. Bring me into yeah. the crowd. Like I want to be part of They're this. They're like, movement. look at me. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, but the thing is like, um, because of all of their efforts, you know, there, there is a lot of opportunities as a Latina to not just do you know, I mean, I was just going with my manager the other day about all of the different projects that she submitted me to. And I've been auditioning like crazy, you know, and it mercifully and I told her from the get go, the kinds of roles I just would not do that I think just represented us in not so great ways. And she's on Mm -hmm. board with that, you know, because she also like the woman that runs that management agency that I work for, she's actually a Cubana. uh, She's from Miami. Um, she's from, you know, her, her family's Mm -hmm. all, you know, they're all Cuban. And so she like, she gets it. And I told her, I was like, I want to be just a really powerful, like woman on screen. I don't, you know, I have nothing against like the housekeepers and the strippers and all the girls and ladies who are hustling to like get their life like in order. But I feel like that's not really my type visually and also just emotionally like I'm not going to represent that group well but um you know so a lot of the parts that they've been submitting me to are things like you know there's a lot of nurses there's a lot of uh business women entrepreneurs and all of this that are open to having Latinas on screen in those roles and I'm like yes that that is what I want to be doing and then on the other side of it I've um I mean, I mentioned I'm 
about to go spend the holidays with my parents in El Salvador. And um, I have been somewhat trying to prepare for that. Of course, I've turned to reading now. It's like, and now I'm just trying to do all of my reading and research about colonialism in Central America and all of the Latino countries, about Eurocentrism, about, you know, just all of these biases that are just like deeply rooted in our culture now. And just trying to like prepare myself. But in the meantime, as I'm panicking about what that means and the conversations we're about to have after this election, um, <laughs> I am also writing a script. It's my first feature film, the script that I'm writing, um, that focuses on this like first gen experience of straddling these three worlds. And, um, and really like all the panic and the anxiety I'm feeling about uh, the, you know, some of the conversations that I have with my very conservative parents, I'm uh, just turning it into fan fiction. I'm <laughs> just writing it all out into a script and then we'll see how it goes from there. Wow. I well, can't wait to read it, see it, whatever it turns into. I I feel like we're, I'm just going to relate to it and be like, yep. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm definitely going to like keep listening to your to your podcast as well because I want to make sure all the first gen experiences are really reflected in, in what I'm putting together. Yeah. Oh, well, that that makes me feel really good. That makes me feel happy. <laughs> and just and that's just a gig, a, like a big shout out to all the people who've been on my pod. Like they are amazing first generation folks. And I just am inspired every week. I'm just like blown away. I'm like, oh, you are amazing. <laughs> um, and I feel like I say that in every episode. I'm just like, you're so amazing. Um, I'm like hype girl, like to the max but no these stories are very beautiful and i'm glad that you're representing our community and you know there is no shame in not representing housekeepers and not representing the same roles that i would see as a kid right it was either a maid a sexy maid or it was you know someone who was really loud and dramatic or someone who was very tame and coy and the housewife and so i'm just like where we live in these extremities and we live in these boxes or they put us in these boxes, mm -hmm. right? And so growing up as a young Latina, like seeing those roles, I'm like, okay, who am I? You know, where do I, where do I fit in? Because first of all, I didn't see a lot of Hondurans that represented themselves in TV, which people don't know America Ferreira is Honduran. She's <laughs> Honduran American, but she doesn't rub her Honduran side, which I'm like upset about, but I'm like, it's fine. Like everyone gets to do what they want to do. <laughs> um, but also, like, there, there's just these different boxes where I'm like, I don't see myself in any of them. Like, I really don't, you know? And even I went through a lot of identity crisis, a lot of identity issues, and I think a lot of first-gen folks feel the same way. They're like, again, it's between these, like you said, three identities. It's like, and then the environment that you're surrounded by, right? What are you seeing in the media? What are you seeing in on TV? And entertainment plays a big role in our lives, like right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> what we consume daily, like, it's everything. Well, it's, it's part of our, our daily intake, right? And you are what you eat. And, you know, we, we eat with our eyes, <laughs> food, but also visually in the stories. And, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a phrase in a lot of casting calls, right? Like that they'll be like, you know, looking for XYZ type of woman or like should be aspirational to this, you know, and, and it's stuff that it's like, yeah, they know that they want someone in that role 
to be someone that people like want to aspire to, right? They want to create that image of, you know, associated with the brand or with the story or something that people can aspire to. They put that in there. And again, you know, and you're right, like, there is no shame in any of the jobs anybody has to do to feed their family. Absolutely not. But if the opportunity is there and people are willing to open up the aspirations of people to make this connection to, you know, folks who, you know, to, to Latina women who are running businesses, who are, you know, not just the fiery Latina that are not just sexy, right? Because we're, we're all sexy. It's a matter of confidence. That's right. <laughs> right? It just boils down to confidence. Everybody is valid. Everybody is valid. Everything, you know. But it's just now it's the opportunity for to push that representation further. Because I'm right there with you. Like, I did not, like, connect myself really to any women, um, you know, and and both of my parents are from San Salvador. I don't feel like I fully like look like most Salvadorians. And I think it's, you know, just cause some, you know, family history and maybe like some, some conquistadors in the, in the lineage, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, some really white relatives. Um, but the yeah. thing is like, I, I don't like I don't know any entertainers I don't know any actresses from El Salvador and I know they're out there like the Salvi community in Los Angeles is like strong and bold um but we're not represented you know people don't know what most like Central Americans look different than uh you know people from the islands or from Mexicans or from you know Argentina and like and all of the European roots (laughs) going into all that yeah girl Girl, I feel I feel this all the time, and I'm like, Central America is so underrepresented because people don't even know we exist. Like from from I think like Nicaragua, you know, El Salvador, Honduras, like like just those countries right there. Mm-hmm. People just forget about it. Guatemala, they're like, what? <laughs> I'm like Honduras, and I remember people would just question me all the time, like. Hungarian you're Hungarian I was like no I'm Honduran and they're like (laughs) where is that and I was like um in Central America and they'd be like but you speak Mexican and I'm like I speak Spanish so (laughs) but just that the constant education right like the constant like having to having to prove who I am Mm -hmm. to people who are just ignorant not by any of their faults but that's not what we are learning in school. It's not what we're learning in the media. It's not what we're consuming because we're not represented in these spaces. Absolutely. Which it's, you know, we're, we're doing the work. Girl, no. we're doing the work. I represent. Under, yeah. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. We are a small region, this Central America, yeah. but we are we are loud, girl. We, we like, we're going to show we're up. Loud. And I, you know, yeah. you know cause I, I had the same, I had the same issue, right? Like so many people, they see Latin America as Mexico. <laughs> and south america and i'm like mm, there's a lot in there though like there's, like, there's so much more because then like when i do play that game with people when when like when people start showing a little bit of their racism card they're like but what are you I'm like what do you think i am and just have them go through like this guessing game uh and people think i'm a you know, pacific islander they think i'm filipina they think oh are you italian are you like all of these things and you know, I, maybe I could be. Uh, maybe genetically, these are things that they're seeing. But the truth is, like a lot of it, they're only guessing because 
they don't know what a Salvadorian woman looks like. They don't know what Central American countries are represented, you know, and that's, that's on all the people who came before, like not representing or not like being represented in entertainment and literature and culture. Like our stories just don't get told. And it's, it's hard, you know, but that, that I think was part of why my search for identity and my search for my Latina dad all kind of come together in this question of like, am I enough? Am I valid? And, and really what it's rooted in is like, is my story valid enough to represent or to stand up and say, yeah, I am first gen from two Salvadorian parents. This is, this is me. And perhaps it is inclusive of everybody else's. Maybe other people will see themselves in my story. And I think the the fear is that they won't. Yeah, I 100% feel that. But I feel like you're doing good work and it needs to be out there, right? Like that work needs to be out there for every Salvadorian woman, for every Central American woman, because represent like, girl, there's so many times where I'm just like, oh, people are missing out. Like <laughs> Central America is amazing. <laughs> and and it's it's crazy because people, they group us into either you're kind of like Mexico or you're kind of like you're in South America. And it's like, well, no, we're literally dead smack in the middle between both. And, you know, some of us have Caribbean Caribbean um, lifestyles too, mm-hmm. right? Like my, my family's from the Caribbean coast. And so there there is Caribbean coast in Central America. <laughs> and I'm like, and then there's the other coast, you know, like there's different regions within Central America where it plays a role into our identity, our culture and what we eat, what we, what we dance to, what we like, our cultures, like our cultures as a whole. And I'm in this constant, you know, like, um, I guess, spirit of exploration, I would say, like I'm in this constant exploration of identity, of culture, of being a Honduran woman, being a Honduran American, you know, being a first gen, but also in this, in this learning stage of my culture. And I feel like every single day being here with my mom and my dad so closely, I'm like reminded of all these things I kind of forgot about because naturally I'm like, I'm going to school, I'm working, I'm doing all these things, but like being back here, I'm like, Oh my God, this, what kind of platano is this? <laughs> my mom's not educating me. She's like, okay, este platano is it, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just, I'm just laughing. I'm like, this is so special to her. La cocina is everything for mm-hmm. her. And so being in the kitchen with her, I'm just like, these are special moments where I'm never going to forget it. I'm always going to pass it down. So you know, we're on a tangent. All that to say, yeah. our stories need to be represented. <laughs> Absolutely, they do. And, and, you know, and it's so funny how, like, every culture, the thing we all have in common is we pass down our identities through food. Food is food is a legit love language globally. And, you know, like, similar to that, like, I think that that is one of the things, you know, I, I, I got my passion for cooking and baking from my dad. I, I was laughing last night. Like, I sent some pictures to a friend of mine. Cause I was like, I like I made a vegetable curry last night. I live alone. I made enough for like twelve people. I don't know how to cook for one. So I'm like, I oh gotta- my god, that's <laughs> so true. Though, <laughs> like, yeah, I only we have big pots. Whole barrio, like we we cook for the whole barrio. <laughs> Everybody eats, right? Everybody eats. And but now the problem is, I'm like, was well, me and my plants in my apartment. So everyone's going to eat for a long time. I'm going to put everything into freezer bags and like try and save it. Cause I don't know how to cook for just one gentleman. If you're listening, uh, um, <laughs> yeah. I'm ready for a family. <laughs> right, right. But, but the truth is it is such a special tradition. It is so special mm-hmm. to, because 
honestly, you know, we talked about getting the stories of the of the immigration stories, the family histories, everything. They only come piecemeal at the meal, at family gatherings. You know, everyone's, you know, when you're sitting around making tamales, whatever, and the cheese is flowing, that's the way I have found out the most family history is while I'm cooking. And so, yeah, of course, like, oh, you're so right. Or while we're eating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. As, yeah. yeah. And so I, I was really fortunate. You know, my, my abuelita for the longest time refused to teach us how to make tamales, as I'm learning tamales, because bless her, she just kept saying, she's like, oh, but as soon as I teach you, you're not going to need me anymore. I'm like, babala. Oh, I know. Like, They're all about that too. Like, I don't want you to never not need me. <laughs> right. Exactly. I'm like, we will always need you. But right now, we need this recipe before you forget it. Like, we're going to just. <laughs> And so but right now I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so um, I apparently was the very last one to be given the recipe to make these tamales because I was off like all over the world traveling and filming and doing these documentaries and stuff. And so my two cousins were like, because I told them, I was like, hey, are you jealous? Like, I was going to teach me how to make these tamales. She's like, yeah, she taught us that years ago. I'm like, fine you know it was only because like, okay. only because like they already got married so you know they they yeah. got to learn yeah but you know i'm still single and i think they've all kind of given up on me like eric you're like well i traveled the world okay yeah it's, it's like but I'm, I'm like making a difference in the world you guys uh i don't need a husband i'm like quick, quick side story my grandmother is so funny one christmas she pulled me aside she takes my hand in both of her hands this is like a year after i had broken up with a guy and she's like Miha when are you going to get married and have babies? And I was like, oh, well, I don't know. I just, you know, I broke up with this guy a few months ago. She's like, no, 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 I know, I know. She's like, but at least have babies. I was like, abuela, I'm not even married yet. She's like, she holds my hand and she looks me dead in the eye. She's like, you don't have to be married to have babies. <laughs> like, who are you? <laughs> and she's like, she's like, please give me a grandchild. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, give oh me babies. God. And I'm like, no. But anyway, sorry. Give me babies. I guess great-grandchild? It, it would be, be a great-grandchild. Yeah, she wants great-grandchildren. Yeah. And, you know, I think she's a lot pretty. of Exactly. And she's like, <laughs> you know, but I think a lot of it is just like in their minds, of course. Remember, they, they're working off that checklist. And she just thinks like, I haven't done the third checklist yet, right? Like, I haven't gone, like, you know, I've done all these amazing things. I'm not working my way down the checklist. So they worry. But anyway, so she taught me how to make these tamales. <laughs> and um, and my tia abuela was there. And my abuelita was there. And my mom was there. And it was me. And we just put on cumbias and made tamales from scratch. Like made the masa and everything all. like We spent the entire day. And I captured it all with the 360 camera. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. Is that is that out there? Can I see it? <laughs> it's um I have it saved on hard drive I didn't know what I wanted to do with it but I knew it was too special to not capture on camera so I yeah I set up the camera uh you know and I moved the position a couple different times so you can see like you know my mom stirring the pot over the stove or me like lucha libre style trying to like (laughs) blend the masa with my arms and like grabbing the big pot with my legs because I didn't know they didn't know. And uh, so all of that is captured with a 360 camera. And the nice thing, if people don't know about VR or 360, is that whatever the camera sees, you put your headset on and you see everything from the perspective of the camera. And everything means like literally the ceiling, the floor, 
everything going on in the room. So at any moment, you can either choose to watch me struggle or you can watch my tia abuela dancing the cumbias in the living room with a drink in her hand. You know, like you get the full experience. I love it. Um, so I, I really cherish the fact that I captured that. I don't know what I want to do with it yet, though. Still in the in the ideation <laughs> phase. Yeah, still. I think still in that like, oh, is this story good enough phase? But girl, every story is good enough. <laughs> I'm telling you, and that's how I feel all the time. Like every story matters. Like how can I capture them? Um, <laughs> but no, that's so beautiful. And I was gonna say, I think we make very similar um, tamales, like the way that we you do it with banana leaf. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is that right? Yep. And then you like put it, la masa, there's two different masas and like, it's just a whole process. I get it. Cause yeah. I'm like doing tamales every holiday. I remember growing up, it was my favorite part of the holidays. Cause it would be like an assembly line. I'm the youngest of seven. So we would all have our station. Like, <laughs> like I was, you know, in charge of like, you know, burning the, the banana leaves a little bit. Mm-hmm. So it has that smoky flavor. And then my brothers were in charge of la masa. Cause you know, this is hard. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's hard. And everyone had, I remember everyone had their station and it was my favorite part of the holidays. And I always think about that. Cause you know, now everyone's grown and they have their own families. Están por todos lados. They're mm-hmm. everywhere, you know, mm-hmm. but I'm always like, I miss that. Like, I kind of want to get my nephews on this already and have them start being a part of that tradition because it's so beautiful. But anyways, we can talk about this for days, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Central American love. But I'm so grateful that you're on here. I'm curious, like, if people want to connect with you, how can they connect with you? How can they follow your work? And how how do they become big fans? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I have my website, ericabarraza.com. Um, if you want to follow along for like updates, uh, my latest projects and things like that, if you really want to get like into my brain from, you know, from my political activism to what I'm listening to day by day, Twitter is probably the best place to interact with me, but you'll find out real fast what kind of mood I'm in each day <laughs> hanging out on Twitter <laughs> with me. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, those are probably the two best ways. And then the last thing we do on this show is a closing, our brindis, with our little cafecito, okay? <laughs> I'm almost done with mine. I feel like I've like been drinking it all morning, mm-hmm. and I had like a little bit un tantito mm-hmm. for this chat, and I'm like, dang it, I should have had a whole new cup of coffee. Girl, you see me. You see my little bowl of like... <laughs> you see... I call it you my... Seen this bowl. <laughs> I call it my cafecito, but it's a cafesoto. this thing is so so much i love it that's 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 how we be drinking coffee though Mm -hmm. like we literally like cafesote we say cafecito but it's a cafesote um (laughs) but um let's close with the brindis and what i like to do here is give you an opportunity to say what we're going to cheers to and what do you want to manifest for our our latino our latina first gen community Mm. Well, so I want to cheers to self-love, emotional validation, and personal success, and the ability to recognize it all. Ooh, that power. Those words, girl. You a storyteller? (laughs) (laughs) Working on it. You a writer? (laughs) (laughs) Cheers, girl. Salud. Cheers, salud. Thank you.
Yo, y'all have no idea how much I love connecting with my Centroamericanos. Muchísimas gracias to all of you for tuning in to today's episode con Erica Barraza. Find out more info about her at her website, ericabarraza.com. Check out her Lenovo films. The link are in the show notes. And connect with her on Twitter at underscore ericabarraza underscore. In case y'all haven't heard yet, tengo una noticias. My partner and sponsor, Rise On and I, took our partnership to a next level and put together something amazing for y'all. In honor of Hello Latino and the stories y'all hear every week and the amazing guests who are so willing to share it, we want to gift y'all with an experience that will have you tapping into your story and being able to articulate it, maybe, who knows, on the show or in your own space. Look for Rise On episodes on Hello Latino and stick around to hear about another Rise On and Hello Latino collaboration. More from my friend Chris Gates, co-founder of Rise On. Mi gente, what's up? This is Chris Gates. I had the pleasure of being Odalis' guest in the Cuba Through My Eyes episode of this amazing podcast. Today, I want to invite you to a free month's membership to my startup, RiseOn. Founded by two first-gen Latinos, RiseOn is like taking a Zumba class for your mental and emotional health. Our mission is to build humans from the inside out, and we help first-gen folks just like you to grow and to heal. So whether you're struggling with life's challenges or just thirsty for a community to help you grow, RiseOn is for you. Every week, we create a space for mindful introspection in community. That's what you get when you mix mindfulness, journaling, coaching, and vulnerable conversations. It's a space to be seen authentically, to develop self-awareness and build inner skills alongside a group of inspiring peers. Our goal is to help you to tap into your own power consistently, to find perspective, clarity, and direction anytime you need it. Over the past two years, we've designed hundreds of experiences for our clients to do just this. These are entrepreneurs and young professionals who trace their roots to some 20 countries. Folks who, despite being brilliantly talented and looking like they got it all together from the outside, are working through some real life challenges. So join us. We'd like to invite every listener of this podcast to experience a Rise On membership for free for an entire month. That includes our weekly Rise On sessions, live and online, plus on-demand mindfulness content and daily community support. To activate your free month Rise On membership, visit www.riseon.life. That's R-I-S-O-N dot L-I-F-E. Rise On dot life. Mi gente, let's rise on.